Chapter Three of King and Parliament by George Henry Wakeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The reign of Charles I to the meeting of the Long Parliament, sixteen twenty five to sixteen forty. From the accession of the second Stuart king in sixteen twenty five until the meeting in sixteen forty of the Parliament which was to arm half England against him, there are three well-marked periods. Till 1629 there is a constant struggle with three successive parliaments which refused to finance the kaleidoscopic foreign policy of the king in Buckingham. From 1629 to 1637 the rule of the king was absolute. He summoned no parliaments, he taxed as he pleased, he legislated by proclamation, he bent the judges to his will and gave Archbishop Laud carte blanche to mould the church to the extreme high church and anti-Puritan model, while Strafford in Ireland reproduced on a smaller scale the same tyrannical form of government. The nation seemed quiet, and all fear of resistance to the Stuart methods appeared to be at an end when Scotland rose in rebellion in defence of its religion. The three years' struggle that ensued completed the period. In 1640 there was no hope for Charles but in an English Parliament, and on November 3rd the long struggle began for the sovereignty of England. The new king was married to Henrietta Maria, sister of Louis XIII of France, in June of 1625, but her influence was at first slight compared to that of Buckingham. Charles was a prince of a quiet and sober disposition. He possessed all the private virtues, and was an enlightened friend of art and letters. But he had learnt only too well his father's doctrine of the infallibility of kings, and he was so obstinate, and so convinced of his own good intentions, that he scarcely understood the necessity of saying exactly what he meant and meaning exactly what he said. His word could never be depended upon. He was easily led into a sudden action, and easily amazed when he was committed to it. Thus his policy at home and abroad was marked by impulse rather than by thoughtfulness. He disliked intolerance, but used it when it suited any policy which he had in hand. Indeed, he seems to have thought that even deception was a fair weapon to gain ends which he believed to be just. Yet he was a loving husband and father, a hard-working man of business, and a fairly staunch supporter of his friends. His greatest fault as a king lay in the fact that he did not in the least understand men. He considered that all those who disagreed with him must be wicked rather than mistaken, and must be forced to see things in the right light. The same fatal flaw was in his friend and adviser William Laud, whom he made Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633. Sir Thomas Wentworth, afterwards Earl of Strafford, who, after a brief resistance to the court in Parliament, joined the King's party because he found himself out of his element among Puritan members, was a third believer in the necessity of carrying through the opinions he held, no matter what resistance was offered, a method which he called the policy of thorough. These were the three men who were soon to exasperate England and bring Scotland and Ireland to open rebellion, not because they wished to harm any one, but because they did not know how to lead men who refused to be driven. Before his first Parliament met, Charles and his favourite were resolved to fight Spain. 
but Louis of France was quite unwilling to give any active help, and England, besides engaging in a new Spanish war, was also pledged to assist the Dutch, pay large sums to Mansfield, and subsidize the Danish king, who was now posing as the champion of Protestantism in Germany. The first Parliament showed its distrust of the king, to none of whose confidences it was admitted, by refusing to vote a tax on imports and exports, known as tonnage and poundage, which had for centuries been granted to kings on their accession as a matter of course. Their Puritan sentiments were also outraged by the encouragement of those clergy who openly taught the king's superiority to law, and maintained extreme high church doctrines. In the end, the leaders began to single out Buckingham as the chief cause of troubles. This was an attempt to make a royal minister responsible to Parliament, and though there were many precedents for it, yet it was so opposed to Tudor practice and Stuart theory that Charles dissolved Parliament in the same year. At once the favourite and his master resolved to show their ability by an attack on Spain. They sent out an expedition which sailed into Cadiz harbour in October 1625, but it turned out a complete and disgraceful failure. A second Parliament found this expedition an additional grievance. Sir John Elliot, vice-admiral of Devon, led the attack, and the favourite was impeached. This again was more than Charles would permit, and the houses were dissolved after demanding the dismissal of Buckingham as an enemy of church and state. The French alliance was becoming too great a strain on Charles's temper. He was vexed that the ships which he lent to his ally were used against the rebellious French Protestants at La Rochelle, though it was for this very end that Louis XIII had borrowed them. He was annoyed by the claims of his wife to regulate her household, and he dismissed her French attendants. He was, of course, quite unable to fulfill his promises to tolerate Roman Catholics, and in 1627 a war with France was the natural result. Buckingham started to attack the island of Ray, from which Rochelle was menaced. The expedition, however, proved an even more dismal failure than that of Cadiz, and Parliament met in 1628 to present an ever-increasing list of grievances. These now take clear shape. The exaction of forced loans and benevolences, the imprisonment of men by the royal power alone, the billeting of recruits in private houses, and the use of martial law were declared to be against the rights of Englishmen, and Charles, after some attempts at resistance, was compelled to agree to this petition of right. But it was not only in political matters that Parliament was determined to make a stand. They complained bitterly of the Arminians, footnote, so called from Arminius, a Dutchman who led the opposition to Calvinism in Holland, end footnote. This was a name given to Laud and his high church friends who were carrying the king with them in their resistance to Puritanism. They refused to acquiesce in the extreme forms of Protestantism which had been for a long time in force on the continent, and to which the Puritans wished to bind the English church. This development of Protestantism was called Calvinism from the French reformer Calvin, who had led the movement in the 16th century, and whose teachings had been largely accepted in Switzerland and other places. One of his chief tenets was predestination. He taught that God had once for all chosen his elect by his mere will and pleasure, 
and to the number of those there could be no additions. This was felt by many to be opposed to the idea of a merciful God who called upon men to repent and accept salvation. English churchmen resisted this Calvinism and maintained that the teaching and ceremonies of the English church were to be looked for in her history and that she could repudiate the errors of Rome without needing the hard teaching of the extreme reformers. But the fact that the churchmen firmly believed that the commons were only resisting the king for their private ends, and were encouraged by royal favor to say as much, complicated the religious difficulty by making it political. In the summer of the year 1628, Buckingham was assassinated at Portsmouth, while preparing an expedition to relieve the Huguenots in Rochelle. An officer named Felton, who grew angry at not getting promotion, brooded over his wrongs and began to attribute them to the man who was spoken of in parliament as the enemy of his country he was at last driven by such thoughts to the terrible crime of murdering the hated duke by stabbing him the king was thus left to conduct his own government the way seemed open for a better understanding much might have been done now for the houses would have welcomed any attempt to work with them pym the future parliamentary leader and Eliot, the future martyr to liberty, were alike anxious to see King and Parliament in harmony. Not a word had been said against Charles personally. Even a Puritan writer who did not scruple to describe the bishops as knobs and wens and bunchy popish flesh had a kind word for the good harmless king. But Charles was dogmatically sure of his path, and insisted on his right to levy tonnage and poundage without grant, holding that it was not included in his renunciation of gifts, loans, taxes, or benevolences in the petition of right. The leaders of the house encouraged merchants to refuse payment. They were also thoroughly alarmed at innovations in religion and determined to put their case before the country. Three resolutions were passed declaring those who introduced religious innovations, paid tonnage and poundage, or exacted it to be enemies of the country. The speaker who wished to abscond was meanwhile held in the chair by excited Puritan members, and the doors locked to prevent the dissolution which they knew to be imminent, and which followed as a matter of course. The king now determined to rule without Parliament, and for eleven years he managed to get along somehow without one. Eliot and others were imprisoned for their recent action in the House, and the judges were induced to refuse them liberty unless they acknowledged their fault and promised amendment. This was refused by some, and Eliot died in prison three years later. Peace had, of course, to be made with France and Spain, 1630, and though Charles had a fine opportunity for recovering the Palatinate, he was obliged to refuse it. Gustavus Adolphus, king of Sweden, the greatest warrior of the age, carried all before him in Germany. But the English king had no power to back him, and the Protestant champion fell on the field of Lützen in 1632. Yet Charles was not inclined to abandon his sister's cause. In 1633 he returned to his father's feudal hope and actually allied with Spain against the Dutch in order to get Spanish help in the matter of the Palatinate. He required a fleet and revived an old custom by which maritime counties were obliged to supply ships and money in time of danger. As he dared not announce his Spanish intrigue even to his council, he issued his first writ of ship money in 1634, 
on the plea that channel pirates must be put down the fleet sailed about the channel but accomplished nothing and as france and holland now combined against spain there was small hope of her intervention to secure charles's family interests in the palatinate in sixteen thirty three two events of profound import occurred wentworth was made lord deputy of ireland and laud succeeded abbott as archbishop of canterbury for seven years ireland was ruled by a fearless and strong hand wentworth knew that it required both where i found a church a crown and a people spoiled i could not imagine to redeem them with gracious smiles and gentle looks it would cost warmer water than so this was his own account of his prospects and he certainly followed it out in a few years he modelled and disciplined a standing army cleared the coasts of pirates introduced some manufactures started the growing of flax and reformed the church system but he forgot to be careful about the means he used in order to get land for colonists he violated some concessions known as the graces which had secured the native lords against any possible confiscations he brushed aside legal and constitutional rules as easily as he crossed the ideas and customs which centuries of use had endeared to the people his objects were noble his achievements were great but his lasting success was nil he won no hearts what wentworth sought in ireland laud sought in england unity by means of enforced uniformity for both the lever was the royal power for both the watchword was thorough laud used the star chamber and high commission court to force englishmen into a groove he spared neither rank nor creed he wished to punish the immorality of the rich the nonconformity of the puritan and the recusancy of the roman catholic the object unity was as noble as strafford's but the methods were as fatal to real success laud wished to see the church one in the beauty of holiness one in belief one in ceremonial one in resistance to romanism this was impossible there were good and holy men who were unable to agree with him and there were also those whose scurrilous language and irreverent ways were a legacy from the fierce struggles of the early days of the reformation some of these ardent puritans disappointed at the failure of the millinery petition and hampton court conference had already left their country to seek a new home where they could worship without interference these pilgrim fathers sailed in the mayflower sixteen twenty to the shores of north america here they formed a colony soon to become the great state of new england among those who remained at home there was a feeling that the outward forms to which the archbishop exacted conformity were really a pathway to rome thus men refused to bow at the sacred name to kneel at holy communion to use the communion table anywhere but in the centre of the church though we can now acquit laud of any desire or intention of being untrue to the national church there were not wanting signs which led honest men to think otherwise a papal messenger was long at the court on friendly terms with king and ministers roman catholic converts were sure of the queen's protection and the chapels of her majesty and the foreign ambassadors were neutral ground if this was only tolerant we must not forget that it was also illegal and to the majority of englishmen incomprehensible except on the basis of a deeply laid scheme to restore the church to the pope 
men were imprisoned whipped pilloried and mutilated for libels on the bishops of these victims the best known is prynne who had already been punished by the star chamber for a book condemning stage plays which was thought to contain some aspersions on the theatre-loving queen in sixteen thirty six he was a second time pilloried and the remains of his ears shorn off the national feeling was shown by the open sympathy which such men received but there was no sign of a cessation of the system in sixteen thirty five ship money was demanded in a second writ which extended the tax to inland counties and towns the king consulted the judges and published their answer which declared that he could legally order such payment and was the sole judge of the danger which justified such unusual demands but it was clear there was no immediate danger the nation required a defensive system for which parliament might easily have been summoned to pretend that a discretionary power which is necessary in an emergency had become part of the ordinary law of the land was to raise the question whether parliament was more than a name in england the freedom of the nation was at stake in sixteen thirty six a third ship money writ followed and a gentleman of buckinghamshire named john hampton whose contribution was assessed at twenty shillings determined to refuse payment and have the matter tried in a law court his counsel took their stand on ancient laws concluding with an appeal to the petition of right and urged that no man was bound to pay taxes except when granted by parliament the judges however adopted the theory that the king had a right to command since he was the soul of the body politic and by a narrow majority gave judgment for the crown ship money was not the only means taken by charles to fill his coffers and avoid a parliament ancient forest rights were revived and men were fined for infringing them compulsory knighthood a relic of the feudal age was revived and fines demanded for exemption monopolies were granted to companies since a law of sixteen twenty four forbade them to individuals and the customs were collected and increased though as we have seen they had never been granted to charles by parliament yet the king seemed secure in his course there were no newspapers railways or meetings to make the national disgust articulate nothing but a parliament could focus the religious and constitutional opposition to the system of thorough and since the king was determined to avoid all foreign complications there seemed no prospect of such an assembly being summoned the blow which scattered this system came from scotland james had irritated the presbyterians by his bishops and ceremonies but Charles did worse. He visited Scotland in 1633 and gave the bishops a footing they had never had before. They were promoted to political office and the chief power in the Scottish Parliament. This sent even the nobles, although they feared and disliked the democratic Presbyterian clergy, into the arms of the Kirk. But worse was yet to come. Laud and his master were determined to unite England with Scotland in religion as a step toward complete political union. To this end, canons which enforced a new prayer book and a ceremonial foreign to the Scottish Church were prepared in 1636. Charles had already been warned not to import a servitude on this church not practiced before, but he knew not the meaning of a nation's feelings. When in 1637 the new service book appeared, it was described as the mass in english and a riot occurred in july when it was introduced at st giles in edinburgh 
Charles had at last roused a resistance which was national. The Scots nobles, clergy, and people, with very few exceptions, refused to admit that their religion could be touched except by national assent, and they did not need to wait for a parliament to express their meaning, for the very nature of Presbyterian organization was political. Each parish had its Kirk session, whose representatives sat in the provincial synod, while the whole church met in a national assembly where laymen and clergymen attended on behalf of every congregation. A church so organized could not be tampered with. Petitions poured in from the parishes, commissioners were elected to meet in Edinburgh, and in 1638 a national covenant was ready for signature. It pledged the Scots to resist all popery and innovations, and was signed by high and low. An assembly met at Glasgow, which scouted the king's attempts to check its action, and swept away at one blow episcopacy and Perth articles. Charles, having no standing army, was not ready with the weapons of force. He began to temporize. His offers to modify the position he had taken up were refused. The Scots were fully roused, would be content with nothing less than an acknowledgment of their absolute freedom in religious matters. The difficulty before the king was great. He had no army, no money, and no friends. The English feeling during the three years of struggle were largely in favor of the Scots. Laud was mobbed in London, and a daring hand placarded the royal palace to let. The Scots knew how to avail themselves of this, and more than once appealed to the English nation. There were two plans before the king. Wentworth wrote, advising a delay of hostilities, fortifying of the border, blockading of Scottish ports to keep the blue bonnet to his peck of oatmeal, and careful training of a force for action in the coming year. But this could only be done if money were forthcoming, and there was little hope of that. The king determined on war. The Scots were ready. They had collected a large force at Dunce on the border under a veteran soldier, Alexander Leslie, and their historian, Bailey, describes them as constantly preaching, praying, and drilling. Puritanism had become the church militant, what had the English king with which to meet this enthusiasm? He rode to York and on to Berwick, but the forces which had been got together were both badly disciplined and half-hearted, in marked contrast to the rebels a few miles off. In June of 1639 a verbal treaty was made at Berwick in which no real settlement was made, and a general assembly and a parliament promised to the Scots. When these met in August, they demanded the abolition of episcopacy and a veto on the king's appointment of commanders in the royal castles. Charles, failing to see that he was expected to play the part of a conquered enemy, had once accepted Wentworth's proposal to rely on his English parliament. After eleven years' silence, the representatives of England met again in the short parliament, April 13, 1640. They sat for three weeks. Pym stated the feeling of the nation when he claimed for Parliament that position as the soul of the body politic which Charles had so long claimed for himself. The grievances of eleven years were put forward and discussed. The king attempted to rouse enthusiasm against the Scots by exhibiting a letter addressed au roi, which the latter had perhaps intended to send to the king of France. But this seemed a trifle compared to the three writs of ship money. Parliament was clearly not to be moved to abandon its claims, nor would it give the government a penny to fight with, 
and the inevitable dissolution followed on may fifth sixteen forty this time wentworth now earl of strafford wished for no delay he gave his advice at a meeting of the privy council in which he urged the king's right to go on with the war loose and absolved from all rules of government you have an army in ireland he is reported to have added which you may employ here to reduce this kingdom though this speech was to cost him his life which was even now in danger from a terrible disease its import was greater for his country than for himself once more strafford had urged the king to govern england as he had himself been ruling ireland and the conviction that charles meant to do so was to grow until it severed the nation into two hostile camps on august twentieth sixteen forty charles left london and the scots who were again ready to fight for religious independence crossed the border on the same day this time there was no hesitation they forced a march of the tyne at newburn on the twenty eighth and occupied the northern counties the royal army gradually falling back before them the king being without money or means of obtaining a reliable force summoned a great council at york which could only suggest a parliament and a fresh negotiation with the rebel scots at ripon the king agreed to pay the latter eight hundred and fifty pounds a day while they remained in england which they meant to do until they obtained a peace and religious settlement after their own wishes thereupon commissioners were appointed and the negotiations were to be reopened in london strafford's advice had not been followed all classes of englishmen from the peers at york to the prentices in london were at last fully roused while the former urged the necessity of reliance on parliament the latter tore down the posters which proclaimed the scots as rebels it would have been well if the king had now been convinced that no reliance on a man or a theory or a party can enable government to conquer a national spirit which it will not lead but this was a lesson charles never learnt though his failure has taught it to succeeding ages End of chapter three